Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. Well, the last time I brought a message, which was back in August, I mentioned that Mike and I had just moved. I mentioned that because I was talking about what happens on a front porch, and I said, well, we don't actually have a front porch at this point. And I think it's quite possible that the time before that that I preached, I also mentioned that we had moved. Um, and I think it's kind of funny because while moving is, it's a big deal for the individual family. It's pretty common and pretty matter of fact, and it's not really noteworthy. And then I turned to the pa- one of the passages from the lectionary this week, and it's about buying land. I think, oh, that's funny. And while Mike and I did pray about the decisions that we were making, uh, I think it's fair to say that the significance of our little move, um, while it was important to us, it, it doesn't have a whole lot to say in the grand scheme of God's redemptive plan for his people and the way he demonstrates his love for them. He did to us, but, you know, it didn't really impact a whole lot of other people. But the story we read today actually does have great significance in the story of God's redemptive plan and his love for his people. So we're going to read that to start this morning. It'll be in Jeremiah chapter 32. Um, As the lectionary does sometimes, it jumps around a little bit and it skips verses. So we're going to start at verse 32, um, no, verse 1 in chapter 32. Then we'll go down to verse 6 through 15. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give the city into the the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Now jumping down to verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative it is your right and duty to buy it. Then, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, Buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right redeem it, to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy. And I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, then put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses and fields and vineyards will be again bought in this land. I'm going to stop there, verse 15. And I got through all those names. Wasn't that impressive? Shoo. Um, so this is a story about the prophet Jeremiah. 
He was actually imprisoned at the time because the king thought he was being a traitor. You see, Jeremiah suggested that they lay down their arms and surrender to Babylon, which is actually a message that God had given Jeremiah to give to, ba to the king. But he wasn't happy with it, so he imprisoned him. I guess he thought, if I imprison him, then I can control the messages that God gives to him to give to me. And there's a whole lot more to this story about what's going on with Jerusalem and the Israelites, but we're not going to get to all of that. Just for you to know the setting, that Jeremiah is imprisoned, he's in the... the, the the palace um, can't go anywhere, and that's why, because he is given prophecy that the king doesn't like. Part of the prophecy is that Babylon will conquer the city and they will be destroyed. Um, and that does happen. Believe it or not, it does happen. What God says will happen, happens. So while confined in the courtyard of the palace, Jeremiah has a vision that his cousin is going to come to him and offer him to buy his land. Now, in a normal situation, this wouldn't be all that uncommon in that time. Um, it's in keeping with Mosaic law that if someone wants to give their land to a family, they give their land to a family member. Kind of like if you're familiar with the story of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. Like there's family heritage that you pass things on, there's family stuff that goes on. Same thing is happening with land. Um, now, if the family member who's getting rid of the land is in financial strain, they can ask for their other family member to buy it. So that's what happened. This cousin comes to Jeremiah and says, buy my land for me, keep it in the family, keep it so that the family has the, the wealth that this land represents. Um, but he asks him to buy it. Now, financial strain is a little bit interesting when your city is surrounded and you're about to be conquered and you're actually going to know, oh, nothing in a very soon span of time. But regardless, um, this is what Jeremiah had envisioned, and the cousin comes and asks him to do exactly what he had already envisioned happening. So by the cousin coming and doing this, Jeremiah says, I know this is from God. I had the vision. It's been confirmed by my cousin coming and asking for me to do this. So he buys the land. He does everything legally correct. You know, he dots all the I's, crosses all the T's, has the deed sealed, everything done in the proper order. And he wants to be sure that this transaction is recorded and remembered. Andy does it all in the witness of others. I think the details behind recording it and having the witnesses be aware of what's going on is significant. First, because the purchase of this land in the day and the time they were living in was extremely significant. Jeremiah was making an investment in the future when he himself was prophesying that the future is very, very bleak. But God had made long-term promises, and he believes God's promises to be true. Also, it points to the fact that while Jeremiah trusted God that Israel would sometime return to this place, which was the promise God had made, but there was no guarantee that Jeremiah himself would return to that land. But regardless of that, he does what he believes God has told him to do, and he buys the land. Jeremiah is a man who has been faithful to God. For his faithfulness, he has suffered ridicule, isolation, and now imprisonment. Time after time, he calls the people of Israel to turn from their ways, to turn back to God. And time after time, he demonstrates his, faithful, his faithfulness to God. And in this story, we see basically Jeremiah has put his money where his mouth is. God has promised that he will bring the Israelites back out of captivity, and so Jeremiah buys the property when property value is at basically an all-time low. But he believes in God's promises, and he buys the land. 
couple things that we want to pay attention to in this story, and the first is Jeremiah's obedience. And I think it's kind of a threefold thing as we look at this obedience. First, he's obeying the Mosaic law. He's redeeming the land of a family member. And I'm doubting that a lot of the other Israelites at this time were worried about following Mosaic law. I mean, Jeremiah kept telling them to turn back to God to begin with, but also they know like Babylon is surrounding their city. They know things don't look good. They probably aren't really being as concerned about obeying law as they should. But it matters to Jeremiah and he still follows these laws. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the cousin might have been taking a little bit of advantage of the situation, right? I mean, if your land is about to be conquered, your land will soon have no value. So why not ask your cousin to buy it so you at least have some cash, right? But whether he's manipulating Jeremiah or the situation or not, Jeremiah serves his cousin, he does what he asks, and he buys the land. He pays for the land that will be useless for many, many years to come. Whether his cousin is manipulating him or the situation is not what matters. What matters is Jeremiah's response of obedience to God. What the posture or the heart is of the other guy is not what matters. That's not part of the equation. This is about Jeremiah and God. And third, I would suggest most importantly, he is demonstrating his faith in God and his belief in God's promises of returning someday. He's putting all his money into it. He believes God has said they will return. He's putting his money where his mouth is. Walter Brueggemann said this about it. He said, Jeremiah invested in God's promised future exactly when that future seems completely closed off. He invested in God's promised future. Even bigger than the story of Jeremiah's obedience and trust, we need to notice that God is faithful. God is faithful even when it looks like all the things that we attribute to faithfulness are not there. Often when we think of God's faithfulness, it's when things are going good. But Jeremiah knows God's faithfulness at a deeper level. He knows God is faithful and trustworthy even when he's in prison, even when their city is about to be conquered. Often when we read the Bible, we're looking for a moral of the story. But in her book, The Bible Unwrapped, Megan Larissa Good says this about that. She says, the most fundamental rule for interpreting biblical narratives, like this one, is to remember that while every story has meaning, not every story has a moral. Every story has a reason for being recorded. Not every story lends itself to clear moral judgments or conclusions. Just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean it should happen for you. So while we can say, okay, Jeremiah trusted God, go and do likewise, sure. I think that's something we can be okay with. Jeremiah trusted God and we should do the same. But if Mike and I had read this back in May and we read this that Jeremiah bought land, that's not God telling us that we need to buy land because somebody in the Bible did it. There's meaning, there's meaning to what this story is, but the story is about the faithfulness of God and Jeremiah trusting in the faithfulness of God. It's not a moral that we have to take an individual lesson of what we need to do from that. Because the bigger truth than Jeremiah trusting God is that God is trustworthy. And so what we have here is not necessarily a man that we look up to or emulate. We could or we, we don't have to. What we have is the testimony of this man through his actions that God is trustworthy. 
and that's what we need to pay attention to. Commentator John Guest said this about Jeremiah buying the land. To me, this embodies the reality of the faith life. It's not carefree, nor is it blind to circumstances. Faith looks squarely at the circumstances, admits fear, and keeps on going. And Cheryl Peebles Birch said this, by purchasing the land in the midst of Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon, and while he was imprisoned, Jeremiah defines what it means to have faith in God's future. He attests to his conviction that God is present even in catastrophe. He declares that meaninglessness or non-being will not triumph. To the multitudes of those who suffer from hopelessness and despair of unexpected setback, Jeremiah underscores that out of chaos of change, God's promises will be fulfilled. And with that, we turn to Psalm 91, which is one of the other passages from the lectionary. I read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again because I think that it would be helpful. Psalm 91, starting at verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks the darkness, nor the plague that destroys the midday. Down to verse 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble and I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now something you might know or not know about me is that I pay a lot of attention to words, which may be surprising because I also tend to put my foot on my mouth, but set that aside. For example, the other day I was talking with somebody about getting new glasses. And the person I was talking to said she had astigmatism. And I said, is it stigmatism or is it astigmatism? And she's like, oh, I don't know. So, you know, you Google it. And actually, from what I understand, if there's any optometrist, you can correct me later. If your eyes don't work right in that realm, it's an astigmatism. Stigmatism, I think, is actually the right way it's supposed to work. I could be wrong. But anyways, I get caught up on words like that. Here's a little less confusing um, and maybe reveals a little bit more about me than you need to know. But anyways, um, sometimes I get really caught up on the words people use like this. If you were to walk in the room and say, I am so hungry I could literally eat a horse. Okay. Now, I like exaggeration and hyperbole. When I was a kid, often, and I still every now and then, remember I grew up near Boston, we would say, I'm starving like Marvin. That was something we said quite often. We weren't literally starving. I've never had a moment in my life where I was starving, but that's just something we would say. So I'm okay if you exaggerate, use hyperbole. But literally, if I brought a horse in, you would literally eat the whole thing. That's what you're telling me. Like, that's kind of where I get stuck on words every now and then. I know, don't be self-conscious if you use the word literally in front of me ever again. It's okay. I also have a lot of grace when it comes to that stuff. But anyways, so I get to a psalm like this. And it says, he will protect you. And the skeptic in me, and maybe the skeptic in you says, but not always. We just prayed about Pastor Brian. He's not, he's, he's got a concussion. He's kind of sick. 
we know that he loves God. If this psalm says that people who love God will be protected, that's not what happened. How do we repeat a psalm like that when we know that bad things happen? We all know bad things happen to people who love God, to everybody. Well, we need to remember the psalms are poems. In that book that I just read from, she also says, she says, poetry is useful for conveying truths too large for ordinary language. It's a medium for capturing feelings too big for everyday speech. So sometimes these grand statements are meant to capture the fullness of the emotion that we feel as we think about God's love and God's care and God's protection. Another thing we need to consider is that we may not be reading the psalm the right way. As Tim Keller said, we may actually be playing into the hand of how the enemy wants us to read this and be shaken by our faith with the skepticism that comes with it. If the enemy can get us to believe that if we believe in God, nothing bad will happen to us, then when those hard times come, which they will, then we play into Satan's hand of questioning our faith and pulling back a little bit from God because life hasn't happened exactly the way we want and the way we think that God promised based on this verse. You may find it interesting to know that the lectionary actually skips the part of this psalm that Satan actually used against Jesus when he was tempting him in the desert. Satan says, the Bible says God will have angels keep you from even stubbing your toe. Go ahead, throw yourself down from that high point. And Jesus says, ah, no. God says don't test him. Move along, Satan. So the way to read this, this psalm is the way to read any scripture. It's in the scope of what all the other scripture has to say. One scripture cannot be pulled out if it's going to contradict all the rest of scripture. There are plenty of scriptures that say we will have hard times and we will experience bad things. Romans 5 says we rejoice in our sufferings. John 16 says um, in the world you will have tribulation. James 1 says count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. We are not promised a lifetime pass on hard times and challenges because we trust and love God. Now, I know that's kind of a brief answer, and if you are struggling with something pretty significant right now, I'm not trying to say that that little answer answers all the whys about why God doesn't protect you and why he protects this one and not that one, why he does what he does or doesn't seems to not do what he does. But I hope what that does is helps you to be clarified on how we read those verses. They have to be read within the whole context of all that scripture says to us. So let's look at what this whole psalm offers to us and see the big picture of not just this verse but the psalm. This is the thing that Jeremiah believed in so deeply that he put his he staked his life on it. And that is the love, the protection, and the faithfulness of God. This is a psalm of hope and of comfort. The imagery is beautiful, and depending on your personality type, maybe you really align with the strong, the fortress, the refuge, or maybe you really align with the protecting, the mother bird who has her hens under her wings, the protector, the nurturer. It's important to keep in mind that this psalm is about who God is and what he offers to us. 
there is something that has to be said for us being in relationship with God. We do need to have a desire to be with him, to be near him, to be in relationship with him. But this is about what God does for those he loves. This isn't about doing or striving or earning. This psalm is about being, receiving, resting, and being loved. Let me say that again. This psalm is about being and receiving and resting and being loved. You are valued by God as you are without doing anything else to earn what he gives to you. You don't earn it. You receive it by being. The opening lines of this psalm reinforce this idea about God and not, it is about God and it's not about what we do. And obviously, depending on the translation that you read, you'll have different words, but the idea is the same. He who dwells in the shelter will rest or abide in the shadow, in his shadow. The invitation in the opening lines of this poem, of this psalm, are simply to be. Be in the presence of God. Be in relationship with him. And this, in and of itself, is opposite to everything in the culture that we're in. Where else in the... Where else in life are we invited to receive something amazing just because we're there, just for being? Everything else around us tells us we need to strive in order to receive, we need to do more, we need to have more, we need to be more, we need to achieve more. But this psalm says, no, just be there with God and he will be there with you. This also, I think, speaks to the idea of contentment. One of the other passages from the lectionary that we're not really paying too much attention to today is from 1 Timothy, in which Paul tells Timothy to flee from all, everything, flee from the danger of love, of the love of money. Free from all of that and pursue godliness. And I would love to sit down and talk with you if, if you disagree with me, but I'm pretty sure it is hard to sit and dwell and rest in God while you're also striving to be all or have all that this word tells you that you need to have. This idea of, com of contentment is significant. First, it takes away all the pressure for what the world tells us that we need to strive for. But secondly, I think it changes our priorities. So now when we sit in the pre presence of God, we're noticing and we're desiring God-like desires. What I mean by that when we have God-like desires is that we think what we think is important or what we are feeling is being threatened when hard times come our way, those ideas may shift a little bit when we have more of the God-like desires. I think when we expand our minds and our hearts to have God-like desires, the view of what God offers us in this psalm also expands. I don't say this lightly, I don't say it easily. I know contentment is not easy. We all struggle with it. We're all being encouraged by all of society to fight against it. Don't be happy with what you have. Do more, get more, be more. But the battle is more easily won by sitting and abiding and resting with God. One phrase that kept sticking out to me as I read this psalm was, he will save you from the fowler's snare. In other words, a, a bird trap. To me, the temptations of life, the call for all of us to be more, to have more, to do more, that's the fowler's snare. Everything that is opposite of contentment is the trap that we so easily get stuck in. 
But when we have a God-like mindset, contentment in God, when we allow him to, through his presence, to change our way of thinking, simply being with him and abiding with him, he is in fact saving us from the fowler's snare. I think one of the biggest takeaways from the psalm is not that we won't have trouble, as I said earlier. It says in the psalm, terror of night, arrows of day, pestilence that stalks the darkness, destruction that waits at the noonday. In other words, there is hard stuff all around us. But the promise of it all is God is there with us and he will be with us in the midst of it all. Look at verse 15, he says, when they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. The reason we seek after God is not to avoid hardship, but to know his sustaining presence with us through hard times. Um, Chad, if you want to go let the kids know it's time to come up. As we wrap up, there's one other thing I want us to pay attention to. As we read this psalm, there's this tension of living in the already and the not yet of God's kingdom being here, but not fully. That some stuff we deal with will be resolved today or soon or in our lifetime, but some of it won't be resolved before we pass. Jeremiah didn't know if, his, if the Israelites would come back before he died or not. Or sometimes it won't be resolved until Jesus comes back and sets things right. And we live in this tension as we read a lot of scripture. But around here, and around here, we talk a lot about salvation is not just for when we die. It's not about just your life after this earthly life. But Jesus renews us over and over and over again as we live now. He saves us over and over again and over again. We are offered this abundant life now, not just eternal life, but abundant life now. And again, that passage in 1 Timothy that I referred to earlier, Paul says, take hold of the eternal life. And the commentators say he's not talking about then, he's talking about now. Take hold of the life, the abundant life. Step into the fullness of the life you are offered now. So when we look at this psalm, we know that God's protection is sometimes now, but sometimes not. And sometimes it will come in the form of, no matter what happens in this earthly life, nothing can take you out of the hand of God. Paul states it clearly in Romans 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the ultimate protection that we have in God. I'm gonna admit, it feels good and yet it still feels a little bit ambiguous or a little bit superficial to say, well, sometimes God's protection is for now and sometimes it's for later. But that is the reality of the life that we have in Christ. It's not easy and I wish I could tell you that God is gonna get you out of whatever difficult situation you're in, but I can't because that wouldn't be fair to you and it wouldn't be fair to God. But the deep, deep, deep promise of this psalm the one I want to hang my hat on is verse 15. He will call on me. This is God saying this. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. 
I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Pain and God's presence are not mutually exclusive. Jeremiah knew pain, but he also knew God's presence. Our invitation this morning is to be and to dwell and to rest, to allow God to be God, to care for you, to protect you, to walk alongside you, to call upon him and in faith to wait and allow him to answer you. But it's not about what you do. This is about God caring for you because you are valuable enough in his eyes that you have to do absolutely nothing, nothing to receive his love and his care and his protection.